Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 116, A Good Parliament and a Bad Death. Last week we'd left Alice Perez and a group of unusually corrupt officials in control. Latimer the Chamberlain, Lyons the Master of the Royal Mint in particular. Now the other player, and really the king for all intents and purposes with Edward, sliding into senility and the Black Prince too ill to take part, was, of course, John of Gaunt. And hate him or loathe him, at least whatever happened, Gaunt was a man to be reckoned with. The curious thing about Alice and her period of nest-feathering was where was Gaunt? Why wasn't he objecting to all of this? The truth is that Gaunt and the other senior earls were busy, Gaunt's organisation of a truce with France, it has to be said, was something of a triumph, given the military situation. And Latimer and his partners in crime were clever. They made sure grants kept coming Gaunt's way, and things were cooked up behind closed doors. There was nothing specific for the magnates to latch onto. How long that could have gone on for is anyone's guess. But there's no reason to suppose that Gaunt saw anything exceptional on its way when Parliament was called in 1376. Parliament had to be called because the war was due to resume in a year and taxation was needed to raise an army, or the English were set fair to be pushed into the sea. So, out from the Palace of Westminster, the summons went out for the Knights of the Shire and the Burgesses of the Towns to be elected, and personal summons sent to the ever smaller number of earls and barons. And on April the 28th, 1376, Parliament assembled for the opening. Now, we had a review of how to hold a Parliament about 100 years ago. 
but let's use this as another opportunity to make sure that you can visualise the good Parliament and other Parliaments by walking you through the Palace of Westminster of the time. There's a link on my website to a really neat site, by the way, that gives you a tour of the Palace of Westminster, both now and as it was in the days medieval. By this stage, most parliaments were held in the Palace of Westminster. It was still theoretically possible, like the parrot sketch, to hold a parliament anywhere where two or three people were gathered together, but actually any held outside Westminster in Edward's reign were termed great councils rather than full parliaments. So in fact the last full parliament that had been held outside Westminster had been in 1335 at York. So although there is no formal layout and chambers designed specifically for the parliamentary task, as there are now, a sort of tradition and a set of normal practices had grown up. So I've put a map of the layout of Westminster Palace up on the website for you to look at, but essentially let me ask you to centre your imagination around the massive Great Hall, what we now call Westminster Hall. It's a vast open space, 73 metres long, 240 feet long, whatever your unit of measurement. It runs broadly north to south, and it's remarkable in that it seems to defy the technology of the time available when William Rufus had it built. At that time, the width of a hall was limited to the length of a single timber, but Westminster Hall is considerably wider. But there's no evidence that there was ever a central run of columns so that two timbers could be held together. Anyway, by 1376, Westminster Hall is home to the central courts of the land. At the northern end was the Court of Common Pleas. And in the rooms off the northern end were the Exchequer Rooms, with their bean counters, their tally sticks and their worried-looking sheriffs. Moving to the southern end, you'll see the Court of Chancery and the Court of the King's Bench. One day soon, we'll review the development of the justice system, but not today. The thing I want you to imagine today is the hubbub. If you've ever been in the hall, you'll know that the noise echoes all around. And in those days, the courts would have been running constantly with banked seats, holding judges and jury, with barristers presenting, a scene of constant movement and noise, people coming and going in a constant hustle and even the occasional bustle. So now, I'm going to ask you to squeeze past the court of the King's Bench and take a door in the southeastern corner. You'll come out into the quiet of a short corridor and if you take a door on the east wall of that corridor, you'll come out into St Stephen's Chapel, running east to west at right angles to Westminster Hall. St Stephen's Chapel had been started in the previous century by Henry III. Henry did so love the French, and he had seen the Saint-Chapelle of Louis IX in Paris, and he'd been really impressed, so he'd decided to make his very own. Unfortunately, it had burnt down, and it was Edward III who saw the work completed. St Stephen's Chapel is on two floors. The upper chapel is used exclusively by the royal family, and is accessed from the royal apartments. That makes the point again that the Palace of Westminster at the time was a proper palace, not a place specifically designed as it is now, just for parliaments. So back to St Stephen's, 
Of course, the Reformation, with its whitewash, hasn't happened yet, so it's richly decorated. Take the time to look around you, and high above you, about a hundred feet up or more, you'll see that the ceiling is painted blue, covered with thousands of gold stars. Below the windows, you'll see painted biblical stories. In fact, Edward III himself had spent a great deal of cash on it, glazing all the windows and completing the painting. The chapel will eventually be used as the official meeting place of the House of Commons until it burns down in 1834 to be replaced by the palace you all see today. If you go out of the chapel to the north, you'll come into the cloister. And on the southern end of the cloister, so in this case, right next to the chapel itself, was the chapter house. As I guess you'll all know, the chapter house is where all the official meetings of the church or abbey are held. And it's in the chapter house that the commons met, but actually not the one you're looking at now at St Stephen's. Instead, they all took themselves off, literally just across the road, to Westminster Abbey with its spacious polygonal chapter house. And it's in here that the commons had begun to move, meet and have their being. Let's go back a step and assume that when you left Westminster Hall by the same door behind the King's Bench into that little corridor, rather than take the door into St Stephen's Chapel, you kept going straight on and walked into what is called the Lesser or White Chamber. The White Chamber no longer exists, but was built in the 12th century and it was here that the Lords would normally sit during Parliament. We don't know how it was decorated, but we suspect that the big white stones of its walls are what gave it its name. So I'm going to imagine massive, imposing walls and a bare, cold, open space. At the southern end of the complex lay the painted chamber. This again was Henry III's creation. Henry had heard that his beloved hero, Edward the Confessor, had died in a room on the same site, so he'd built a magnificent chamber, at one end of which was a state bed where he'd kip. There was a squint in the wall, a small hole he could look through and look into Stephen's chapel next door and see the altar. The painted chamber was also destroyed by fire in 1834, but as it happens, it was redecorated earlier in the early 19th century and sketches had been made of the paintings, so we know a bit about what they looked like. What they showed were warlike stories in the Bible, together with the focal point, the coronation of Edward the Confessor. Of particular note was the figure of Judas Maccabee, the greatest warrior in Jewish history. The message, then, is one of the glorious role of kingship, heavily influenced by Edward I's desire to go on crusade in the 1290s. It's in the painted chamber, to come back to the narrative, the parliaments were opened. The various group took their places, and then the Archbishop of Canterbury opened the proceedings with a sermon. And then speeches on the challenges and role of this parliament came from the Chancellor. In 1376, the opening was presided over by a grey-haired, weary and distracted Edward III, and a pale, undrawn Prince of Wales. Neither of them would have the strength to appear at any of the further proceedings, and so it was left to the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, to preside. John Nivett, the Chancellor, basically laid out that although they had a truce for a year with France, England was deeply in the poop, and to get them out of it, 
the king needed a tenth from the clergy and a fifteenth from the laity and the customs on wool as well. Oh, and if there's any advice you want to give us about good governance of the realm, please feel free, but mainly just vote as a tax. The following day, the lords and bishops hopped off to the White Chamber. But we're going to follow the knights of the shire and the burgesses of the town as they make their way over to the chapter house of Westminster Abbey. There they sit in a circle and begin to talk. And it's immediately obvious that something's in the air and this will not turn out to be a normal parliament. Because at the beginning they all swear an oath to keep their discussions secret and work together for the profit of the realm. Someone then asked if anyone had anything to say and an unnamed knight from the south of England went up to the lectern and started things off. Here's what he had to say. Lord, give us thy blessing. Gentlemen, you have heard the points raised in Parliament, how disturbing they are, how our Lord the King has asked of the clergy and of the commons a tenth and a fifteenth and customs on walls and other merchandise for one year or more. And it seems to me this is too great to grant. For the commons are so weakened impoverished by various tallages and taxes already paid that they cannot bear such a charge at this time. And on the other hand, all we have granted for war for a long time we have lost by malversation because it has been badly wasted and falsely spent. Lord have mercy on our people or affairs. So here you have the main point that was reinforced by speaker after speaker. Essentially, the money that has already been spent has been wasted. These men had themselves fought in many wars for Edward, often with strings of victories. And now, suddenly, in a few short years, we've ended up being soundly thrashed. It just can't be right. We can't suddenly start losing for no reason. It must be corruption or incompetence. And there were specific accusations too, one of the members stood up and complained about the wool staple, i.e. the location where all the wool had to be bought and sold. This is supposed to be at Calais, to bring merchants into the town, but instead Latimer and Lyons had moved it around willy-nilly, allowing them to take money from towns eager to win the trade. As speaker after speaker rose and said the same things, a leader began to emerge. A man who summarised the debates and views clearly and carefully. His name was Peter de la Mer. Now, coming up, a slightly alarming change in sound quality. Because what we're going to do is have a reenactment. So we're going to do a little reenactment here. And to help us with the reenactment of the good parliament of 1376, I have employed the services of a highly trained professional. Of a highly trained actor, otherwise known as my mate Charlie. So, my mate Charlie, introduce yourself to the team. Uh, yes, I'm very honoured to take part in this uh, really? wonderful uh, History of England group. Is that right? And um, yeah. thank you very much for inviting me. You're, you're welcome, Charlie. You're very welcome. OK, so in this piece, uh, Charlie is going to be Peter de la Mer, and I'm going to be John of Gaunt. Gentlemen, you have heard the speeches and advice of our companions and how they have shown their purpose, and it seems to me they have spoken loyally and profitably. Peter de la Mer is a sheriff, but his real power came from the fact that he was the client of the Earl of March, otherwise known as Edmund Mortimer, 
the grandson of the Mortimer who had ruled England with Isabella. Mortimer was a major magnate and not a man who could be ignored. He was the hereditary Earl Marshal. He was also a member of the royal family by marriage. He had married Prince Lionel's daughter Philippa, Lionel, of course, being Edward III's son. And so the debates went on, and more came out about the wrongdoings of Latimer, Alice, Lyons, and other of the evil councillors gathered around the king. And so we get to Thursday the 8th of May, when the talking is done. Everyone was so impressed with de la Mer that they asked him to speak for all of them, and he agreed. Now this was good timing, because Edward and Gaunt were getting restless. What on earth is taking these guys so long? How long does it take to say, yes, you can have your tax? Gaunt was contemptuous of these commoners. As far as he were concerned, they were a bunch of country bumpkins who know nothing of the war and finer points of strategy. Knights of the hedgerow, he called them. So a messenger appeared in the chapter house from Gaunt and demanded that the commons stop messing about and give them an answer. Gaunt's contempt could not have been more misplaced. Many of these men had been involved in the war from the start, and behind them lay the explicit support of men like the Earl of March, but also the tacit support of men like the Prince of Wales. Anyway, on receiving the summons, the Commons decided they would go en masse to read the Riot Act, strength in numbers and all that. But when they went to the Painted Chamber, they meet a Council of Lords, led by a typically imposing and intimidating John of Gaunt. This is a man who's used to getting his own way, and not used to any kind of debate about it, especially from the like of these knights of the hedgerow. He only sees the need for more money, and as far as he's concerned, it's a damned cheek of anyone to take 11 days to do what they're told. And so when the commons turned up en masse, he refused to allow all the commons in, and only de la Mer was allowed in. And so you then have this wonderful battle of wills that has come down to us in some detail over the centuries. Which of you is the spokesman of what has been agreed among you? I have the common consent and right to speak this day for all. Say what you will. Sir, gladly. Gentlemen, you know and understand that all the commons who are here have come by the king's writ and by the choice of the sheriffs of the various shires and that what one of us says, all say and approve. Wherefore, first of all, I demand the reason by some are kept outside, and I shall not proceed to any other matter until they are all present. Sir Peter, there is no need for so many of the commons to come in to give a reply, but two or three at a time are enough, as has been the custom previously. Sir, I will speak no word until all are assembled. De la Mer was made of stern stuff and wouldn't be bullied. At this point, Gaunt had to give way and the rest of the commons were admitted to the chamber. Now, before the big showdown, the commons asked for a council of 12 from the lords to review their case before they presented it to the full lords. And Gaunt agreed to this. That meeting then happened on the 12th of May and it didn't take much to get the support of the 12 lords and so later that very same day, de la Mer and the Commons appeared in front of the assembled grandees of the Lords in the intimidating bare stone chamber and under the intimidating glare of Gaunt, 
already livid with the presumption of the whole carry-on. He wanted to simply steamroll them and force the Commons into giving this tax. I do not think they know how powerful I am, he is supposed to have raged to his household staff. But again de la Mer was not intimidated and launched into his text. And he was relentless and he was specific and he was thorough. He started with the Commons' objection to taxation, concluding... We say that if the king had been well served by his ministers and had his treasure spent wisely and without waste, there would be no need for such a levy. But he has with him certain councillors and servants who are not useful or loyal to him or the realm, and they have taken advantage by their cunning to deceive our lord the king. How is this? And who are they who have taken advantage? Gentlemen, a loan was made by Lord Latimer, who is present, and Richard Lyons, to their own great profit and great damage and loss to the king, at a time when there was no need for a loan. And this loan amounted to 20,000 marks, for which the king had to pay 20,000 pounds, so that those who made the loan gained 10,000 marks. De Lomare was revealing the dodgy dealings of Latimer and Lyons. Latimer himself was there, heckling de la Mer and defending his actions. At one point, the steward of the king's household Neville defended Latimer, at which point de la Mer turned on him. You should not be so concerned with other people's actions when you may soon find it very difficult to defend your own. We have not yet discussed your case, nor touched upon your conduct. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. At which point, Neville seems to have developed laryngitis. It was meltdown, and try as he might, Gaunt couldn't deflect the charges. On the 24th of May, de la Mer formally read out the charges against Latimer, Lyons, Perez and others in Parliament. Horror of horrors, it was revealed that Alice Perez was not only a scheming manipulator, she was also married. And that meant that the king was an adulterer. Here's part of what de la Mer said. Nor is there anyone around the king who wishes to tell him the truth, or loyally and profitably counsel him. But on all occasions, with fooling and mocking, they procure their own profit. Because of this we declare to you that we will say no more until all these false and evil counsellors who are around the king are removed and ejected from his presence and until the present Chancellor and Treasurer are removed from their offices, for they are of no value, and until Dame Alice Perez is completely removed, both as a matter of conscience and because of the bad management of the war and the ills and damages brought to the kingdom. 
As for Lord Latimer, we say to you that by his fault, Becherel and Saint-Sauveur, le Vicomte, were lost and surrendered to the French, and by giving them up, the said Lord took a great sum of gold and silver from the enemy, as we have heard. The which Lord could have succoured and aided them, had he wished, by his own good procurement and government. On that account, we pray and require you, on behalf of the King and the Council of Parliament, that the aforesaid Lord Latimer should be arrested and put under close guard for all the trespasses and crimes committed, until he makes amends and satisfaction to the King for his misdeeds. And the said Richard Lyons should be judged according to his deserts, in the points and articles brought against him, which he cannot reasonably deny. Through the laying down of these charges, we have invented two key principles of parliamentary procedure. The first is the tradition from now on of having a Speaker of the House of Commons, the same office that will come to be an impartial figure sitting between all parties and representing the House. The second was a process called impeachment, a way in which Parliament would now have a precedent and right to accuse and convict the King's ministers without recourse to a court of law, and they'd do this by accusing them in Parliament as they'd accused Latimer. Probably Gaunt and the Lords didn't quite understand the significance of all of this, but they felt duly outraged anyway. But they simply could not ignore the charges which were so well substantiated. Powerful, resentful and well-informed men like William Wickham, the sacked Chancellor, furiously joined in the attack. It was getting thoroughly nasty by this time. It looks as though Wickham was spreading a rumour that John of Gaunt was in fact not Edward's son. There was nothing new in this rumour. It had been around for a while, but it lit Gaunt up like a candle whenever he heard it. The King, tired and exhausted, was not in Parliament, but he had to be told everything and had to capitulate to every demand. Latimer and Lyons were arrested and dismissed. Worst of all, Edward, enfeebled and confused, had to go through the appalling humiliation of appearing in his council to swear that he had no idea Alice was already married, to clear himself of complicity in adultery, and then had to remove her from his household. And finally, a new council of twelve was set up, elected by Parliament to advise the King, so they wouldn't end up with such a coven again. At the following trials, Latimer and Lyons were both convicted, this despite Lyons sending a barrel of gold to the Black Prince, who refused it and sent it away. Lyons then sent it to the King, who much more pragmatically gladly accepted it, saying that it had been stolen from him anyway, and so why shouldn't he have it back? In the middle of all this, at the end of May 1376, Edward went to take advice from his eldest son, the Black Prince. When he and his entourage arrived at Kennington Palace, it was clear that the Black Prince had gone into a terrible decline and that he was in fact dying. The Prince asked the King to place his arms and armour on his tomb in Canterbury, to look after his nine-year-old son, Richard of Bordeaux, and to inscribe Ichdeen, the King of Bohemia's motto from the days of Cressy, on his tomb. The aged and infirm king then watched his son die, surrounded by his weeping attendants. When the news got out, England erupted with praise and despair. Basically, no one had really believed 
that the prince was on his uppers and still thought he'd rise from his bed, put the French to flight and save them all. Thomas Walsingham wrote, The hopes of England utterly perished. The good Parliament closed on the 10th of July. De la Mer was without doubt a brave man who deserves his corner in England's history. But he made two massive mistakes that would work him woe. Firstly, Gaunt was not elected to the Council of Twelve and was massively offended, and was without doubt now looking for the first possible opportunity for revenge. He deeply resented the implication that he was working against the King's best interests. He bitterly detested the idea that these oiks could be telling someone as important as him what to do. And he didn't like that little muck-spreader Wickham. The second mistake was that at the closing of the Parliament, the Commons went to the Palace of Eltham to meet the King and present their 141 petitions, the King being too old to go to Westminster. And then they dropped the real bombshell. They refused to grant the taxation that the whole affair had been about. Now that was not just a huge humiliation, but it was a huge break with what had become accepted practice. Never had the Commons refused to vote a tax when England was clearly in danger. Maybe, just maybe, if they had voted the tax, they might have got away with the rest. As it was, Gaunt went from the Parliament with one thing only on his mind. How quickly he could stuff Delamere and all his cronies. And his comeback was quite stunningly quick. That very same October, the Council of Twelve appeared for their meeting with the King at the Palace at Havering as per normal. But they were met by John of Gaunt, who told them that their services were no longer required, they could sling their collective hook, and they should keep looking over their shoulder because one day he, Gaunt, would be there. Then he went to the king and proffered a petition of his own that Latimer should be pardoned and restored to the royal council, and Alice Perrers should also be restored. The king, too feeble to do very much, gave a sign of his approval. Then, at the Great Council a few days later, Gaunt turned the new death beam of impeachment on Wickham himself, who was convicted and forced to give up all the temporal possessions of his job as the Bishop of Winchester. Poor old de la Mer, meanwhile, wasn't even accorded a trial. He was arrested by royal warrant at the end of November and imprisoned in Nottingham Castle, a sad reward for his courage. Even the Earl of March was stripped of his title as Earl Marshal. It was as comprehensive a counter-revolution as you could wish for. It reminds us, if reminders were necessary, that the king's power is pretty much absolute. The lack of any great upset or outrage about the reversal, similar to the events in 1340-41, are also an indication that when push came to shove, the magnates, barons and clergy were loyal servants of the king. They were not engaged in a centuries-long struggle to reduce royal power. In the Parliament of January 1377, also known as the Bad Parliament, the counter-revolution was ratified in all its respects, despite a few voices raised in protest. In the face of the imminent return to war, most of the nobility in the end closed ranks against the troublemakers. It left one more group to carry the torch of radicalism, and it was a group that caught everyone by surprise. It was London. 
Londoners felt the disasters in France as acutely as anyone. Most of the logistical side of the war passed through London. Trade was heavily affected by its fortunes. The corrupt and failing government of Latimer was held responsible. Gaunt wasn't popular with Londoners for his repression of de la Mer, not popular at all. And then to add to this is the physical composition of London. 45,000 people crammed together with their own liberties and reduced royal control. And the symbols of royal power were well away from the centre and far from visible. The tower to the east and the royal prisons of Marshalsea and Southwark over the bridge. So in Parliament, Gaunt had proposed a bill to transfer powers away from the Mayor of London. And at the same time as this Parliament was going on, a royal clerk and protégé of Gaunt's, John Wycliffe, was to be tried by the church and supported by Londoners. Wycliffe is a man of whom you'll hear much more, but at this stage he's known for producing a paper arguing that the church should be subordinate to the state. Gaunt accompanied Wycliffe to St Paul's. At the hearing, he and the northern marcher lord Henry Percy behaved with delightful arrogance, heckling the judges and abusing the bishops. As a result, London erupted into violence. The mob attacked and ransacked Percy's house. They appeared at Gaunt's Savoy Palace while Gaunt was at supper and he had to get up so fast that he cracked his shins on the table before he fled across the river to safety. Lampoons appeared all over the city describing Gaunt as the Butcher of Ghent. Again, making the most of the same rumour that he was not Edward's son but in fact the son of a butcher. This particular dispute ended in a draw. The idea of appointing a royal captain to rule London rather than a mayor was withdrawn, but the actual person of the mayor himself, he was arrested. At the bad parliament, resistance to attacks continued, but the commons finally gave in. They were still very reluctant to suffer the imposition of the 15th, so instead they implemented an innovative new tax, called the poll tax. The idea was that everyone, rich or poor, had to pay the same amount, four pence. The tax was no more successful than Margaret Thatcher was to find it. The Commons had overestimated the number of people eligible to pay, and although four pence was a tiny amount, it still provoked fury because, in the words of a domestic servant who was arrested for non-payment, it was, quote, unjust and irrational for him to have to pay as much as a richer citizen ought to pay. As a consequence, England faced a resumption of war with just £60,000 in the war chest, far less than they knew they would need in the face of a massive French plan. 1377 was also Edward's jubilee year, and early in the year he seemed to make a recovery. In April he was well enough to take part in the annual festivities for the Order of the Garter. He was rowed up the river through all the river traffic with people desperate for a glimpse of the grey-haired old hero. At Windsor, he knighted his grandson, the nine-year-old Richard of Bordeaux, son of the Black Prince and heir to the throne, together with his own youngest son, Thomas of Woodstock, and John Southeray, his bastard by Alice Perez, and then also the heirs of the houses of Oxford, Stafford, Salisbury, Percy, Mowbray and Beaumont, a whole generation of young men destined to participate in the defeats and divisions of the next two reigns. The list included the heir to the Duchy of Lancaster, Gaunt's own son Henry, currently in Richard's household. Born at Bolingbroke in Lincolnshire, Henry was already shaping up very different to Richard and somewhat in the mould 
of the earlier Duke Henry of Gromal. He was physical and a fighter, but showing an alert and curious mind. Richard didn't seem to like him very much. For the remaining months of his life, Edward stayed at Sheen Palace, seeing few people and living like the same pathetic shadow of a ruler as he had for the last few years. Alice Perez was always in attendance at the head of his bed when audiences were granted. On one occasion, a delegation of Londoners demanded to see him. And they were finally, after a long delay, led into a room where Edward sat, swathed in cloth of gold and muslin, and they noticed that he was actually nailed into his chair to keep him upright. And meanwhile, Alice continued to wheel and continued to deal. But at last, on the 21st of June, Edward suffered a stroke and was paralysed and speechless. If you get to go to the Westminster Abbey Museum, you can see the wooden effigy, which was made at the time of his death, which shows signs of the droop down one side of the face that could well be signs of that stroke. He lay in bed and slowly but surely his household slipped away to look after their affairs on the death of a king, until only Alice and a priest were left. At last, facing the inevitable, Alice stripped the rings from his fingers and fled. He was dead before the night was out and only the priest was there to hear his last words, Jesus, have pity. And the following day, the truce with France expired. At last, England had a king they could truly celebrate, a dead one. Now at last they could remember the glorious, undefeated hero of the 40s and 50s and even 60s without the shadow of a man of the 70s to get in the way. There was an outpouring of grief that in a way actually grew through the years because the conflict and failures of his successor made the Edwardian glories seem even more like a golden age and they were able to conveniently forget that it had all pretty much fallen to pieces by the time of his death. So long ago, I bet you can't even remember, we talked a bit about Edward's reputation and the criticism heaped on him by 19th century historians who hated his successes. Now, a mate of mine a few months ago actually gave me a leather-bound book called The History of England, published in 1825 by Oliver Goldsmith. Here's Oliver's summary of Edward. A prince more admired than loved by his subjects, and more an object of their applause than their sorrow. The reign of Edward was rather brilliant than truly serviceable to his subjects. Damning with very faint praise, I think. For my part, there is an extraordinary tragedy to Edward's reign. All that energy and glory in his youth, freeing himself from the grip of a tyrant when very young, taking the fight to an enemy many times larger and richer than himself. The extraordinary victories, based on genuine military genius and innovation. And the story of a father with a golden son who even managed to exceed his father's military achievements. And then contrasted with the loss of everything they'd won, in the most humiliating way, the loss of their powers and the image of an old, feeble and senile father sitting at the bedside of his son as he died before his time in pain and defeat. But outside of that tragedy, he surely didn't do a bad job for his country. For 50 years, Edward maintained political harmony and consensus. He maintained peace in his own country and he worked with the political community in a way that steadily developed the role of the Commons in Parliament but, as the bad Parliament of 1377 had shown, without seriously giving away royal power. 
At the start of his reign, England was a small, damp island that could easily be ignored. By his death, England was celebrated and feared throughout Christendom. So there we go. We have finally come to the end of the reign, which started over six months and 19 episodes ago. Ahead of us, we have a few decades of defeat, chaos and destruction, so something to look forward to. Before we do that, though, I thought we should have a short break from the political narrative. So next week, we're going to have something on the medieval year, which to the vast majority of Englishmen would have been a lot more important than the goings-on at Westminster. Now, I shan't thank all the donators by name this week, since there are so many, which is something of a triumph. So how's that for punishing good behaviour? But we can have a special episode at the end of February. And in the meantime, I am loving all the comments and suggestions almost as much as the donations. So do hop along to the website if you've got something to say. Meantime, my thanks to all of you. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.